This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How Will Capitalism End? Essays on a Failing System by Wolfgang Streak, which is out now in paperback. The provocative political thinker asks if it will be with a bang or a whimper. After years of ill health, capitalism is now in a critical condition. Growth has given way to stagnation. Inequality is leading to instability. And confidence in the money economy has all but evaporated. In How Will Capitalism End?, the acclaimed analyst of contemporary politics and economics, Wolfgang Streeck, argues that the world is about to change. The marriage between democracy and capitalism, ill-suited partners brought together in the shadow of World War II, is coming to an end. The regulatory institutions that once restrained the financial sector's excesses have collapsed. And after the final victory of capitalism at the end of the Cold War, there is no political agency capable of rolling back the liberalization of the markets. Ours has become a world defined by declining growth, oligarchic rule, a shrinking public sphere, institutional corruption, and international anarchy, and no cure to these ills is at hand. How Will Capitalism End? Essays on a Failing System by Wolfgang Streeck. Out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The cult of troop veneration is an American civic religion with a politically potent liturgy whose strictures are often most fervently insisted upon by those who eagerly send soldiers to kill and die in war. In recent months, it has been weaponized with renewed vigor. NFL soldiers kneeling elicited condemnation from Trump and from a cascade of MAGA enthusiasts. Army deserter and Taliban prisoner Bo Bergdahl was let off relatively lightly, thanks in part to Trump having repeatedly called for his execution on the campaign trail. And then there's Trump cavalierly offering empty condolences to the widow of a soldier killed in Niger. And I wasn't even aware we had soldiers in Niger. The cult of troop veneration, of course, has never had much to do with the well-being of actual troops. It's about protecting the politics of empire and permanent global war. And it's also, as George W. Bush so astutely demonstrated, about enforcing a domestic culture of mindless patriotism that crowds out meaningful criticism of this country's bloodthirsty and exploitative ruling class. In 2002, star NFL player Pat Tillman signed up for the Army, and then, in April 2004, was killed by friendly fire in Afghanistan. But initially, the manner in which he was killed was not disclosed, even to his family. Tillman was hailed as a hero of the war on terror, who not only sacrificed his life, but also his lucrative NFL contract for the sake of his country. What this crowd of patriots rushing to instrumentalize Tillman's death didn't mention was that he was an atheist who opposed the Iraq war and also a Noam Chomsky fan. Most importantly, of course, all of the militaristic veneration of Tillman was accomplished through an extensive cover-up of the fact that he was killed by American fire. His family was lied to for years. This is his mother, Mary Tillman. 
Congress should be looking harder at who is responsible for the cover-up. I think it's really important for people to understand that this deception was not just a deception to our family. Mm -hmm. This was a public deception. Um, you know, this story was concocted in order to, to rally patriotism for the war and to deflect the horrible month of April 2004. Um, with Abu Ghraib and Fallujah and the president's dismal approval rating and all the casualties in Iraq at that time. Yet Tillman has been invoked time and again since Colin Kaepernick took a knee to protest police brutality. Trump retweeted a photo of Tillman accompanied by the text, NFL player Pat Tillman joined U.S. Army in 2002. He was killed in action in 2004. He fought for our country slash freedom. Hashtag stand for our anthem. Hashtag boycott NFL. One of the key features of the troop cult is its built-in defenses against even the most modest skepticism. In 2012, MSNBC's Chris Hayes offered just that. Thinking today and observing a Memorial Day that will be happening tomorrow, I just talked with Lieutenant Colonel Steve Burke, who was a casualty officer with the Marines and had to tell people. And um, I think it's interesting because... It is, I think, very difficult to talk about the war dead and the fallen without invoking valor, without invoking the words heroes. Um, and why do I feel so comfortable about the word hero? I feel comfortable, uncomfortable about the word hero because it seems to me that it is so rhetorically proximate to justifications for more war. <laughs> um, and I don't want to obviously desecrate or disrespect the memory of anyone that's that's fallen and obviously there are individual circumstances in which there is genuine and tremendous heroism of you know hail of gunfire and rescuing fellow soldiers and things like that but it seems to me that we we marshal this word in a way that um is problematic but maybe i'm wrong about that hayes was viciously attacked for insulting the troops and ultimately issued an apology which was utterly regrettable but entirely predictable my guest today is Catherine Lutz, an anthropologist at Brown University's Watson Institute and an expert on security and militarization, gender violence, education, and transportation. She is the author of many books, including Homefront, A Military City and the 20th Century. We spend a long interview carefully examining the history of the Troop Veneration cult and its recent manifestations. Before we get started really quick, Thank you all for helping us reach our goal of 700 supporters on Patreon.com for 2017. We can't do this show without you. That said, we still need your support. So if you like the show and haven't done so yet, please go to Patreon.com slash The Dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash The Dig. Thanks very much. On to the show. Catherine Lutz, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. There's a certain way that Americans are supposed to think about soldiers and veterans that involves deference and veneration, and it plays a major role in American politics. But I feel like the whole thank you for your service discourse around soldiers is more complicated than first meets the eye. It's been used, for example, to attack war critics, but hasn't seemed to impugn the integrity of the hawkish politicians that send soldiers into harm's way. 
in the first place. And I think that recent politics have really made it clear that a lot of the discourse is almost entirely instrumental. I'm thinking back to very early in the primary when when Trump attacked John McCain. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war Five hero. And a half years He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Do you He's agree with hero. that? He's a war hero because he was captured. And this was a huge scandal. The Politico story on it began with the sentence, Donald Trump might have finally crossed the line. But pundits were entirely wrong. His star only rose from from there. What was going on in that moment in the primary? Why did establish, the establish, political establishment and establishment commentariat assume that this was a red line that Trump couldn't cross? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he did. Great question. Yeah, no, it, it looked like he had stepped on the landmine and that he was standing there frozen and he was going to explode any second. But in fact, he didn't because he one-upped the, the paradigm that he had supposedly violated. He said, I love soldiers, but I love real soldiers, soldiers who are tougher than tough, right? We know they're all tough, but actually, no, they're not all tough. Only the toughest of the toughs get the Trump uh, stamp of approval. So he, he kind of placed himself... Uh, as the judge of who counts as a soldier, but he obviously did not question the larger paradigm and, and hasn't uh, in all of the work that he's done since in, in American politics. Uh, he's, he's been a, um, a real campaigner for and a uh, u- user of the militarist framework, um, choosing generals as his, um, you know, as the, the primary people who he's going to rely on in his, on his staff and his cabinet. Um, using, uh, again, very belligerent language, uh, threatening war with, with North Korea, um, p- putting out forward a, a military budget that exceeds all previous military budgets. So I think, you know, that, that was a great example of, of Trump uh, using American political culture in ways that are quite new, but don't break the, the basic frame and keep him uh, in, in great stead with his supporters. Can you tell me a little bit about where this the political culture around troop veneration comes from historically speaking? Yeah, I I as I read about this through the years, I'm I'm still a little bit uh, unsure, but I do know that in World War during World War II, um and again this is based in part on research that I did in Fayetteville, North Carolina for many years looking at the history of that city and its relationship to Fort Bragg. And during World War II, to give an example uh, there, the the soldiers who came to town were treated uh, sometimes with respect, but sometimes as, as seen as real problems, right? As lower class people, as people who did nothing but fight and play cards and uh, get in trouble. Uh, and their people, local people, were rethinking mostly of the um, enlisteds. Officers were seen as, again, another class of people. The kind um, of people, the enlisters were the kind of people that local dads wanted to keep their daughters away from. Exactly. Um, and even their sons away from, again, as, as a sort of lower class bad influence. So, um, you know, when you when you talk about the military at some level, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, there there really are two militaries. There's the officer class and the and the enlisted class. And, and it is a story of class that tells us a lot about uh, class in America more generally, uh, even though it's generally not seen that way. Um, 
But I think one of the places that this, uh, this a change starts to happen in in the assumption that a soldier is uh, basically not very bright is is uh, tends to you know again fighting and 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 laziness even right um, again some of this comes from the era of peacetime when someone who sees a soldier on the you know they they see them sitting around um, enjoying themselves in town or um, basically waiting um, you know that's that's still the sort of um, the, the kind of uh, shibboleth in the military is, you know, you you sit around and wait and, you know... Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait and <laughs> periods of... Long periods of boredom punctuated by life-threatening horror, right? <laughs> um, so, but that was associated in many civilians' minds with, um, again, uh, not real work, right? To go into the military was to go and sit down, right? Uh, even though, of course, that was never true. Um, enlisteds were doing a lot of heavy labor. They were the... Again, before the contracting bonanza, they were doing the kitchen work. They were doing the ditch digging. They were doing uh, a lot of really hard manual labor. Um, but it, maybe it wasn't as visible to civilians, and it was also maybe not as constant as it might have been for for someone who in the civilian workforce doing masonry or um, ditch digging. So I think the the original image of the of the enlisted was not great. Um, and what happens is. The military begins to again become more and more high tech. Um, so, at least um, outside the infantry and the army, um, you have more and more people doing more and more sophisticated kinds of work uh, in the Air Force. With, for example, uh, with missile technology, with uh, more and more sophisticated planes, and so on, and 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 all sorts of fancy equipment, uh, which required higher levels of education to operate, or at least again had a cultural reputation that was more. Um, uh, positive than ditch digging or KP, right? kitchen patrol. So, uh, <laughs> Which is that image of uh, who uh, Gomer Pyle with the potato. Yeah, like exactly. Potatoes exactly. as punishment. Yeah. yeah, I actually, you could again look at popular culture and get a sense from TV and movies of how some of those images change over time. But I think the big turning point um, that which people have pointed out, of course, is that the, the military had relied a lot on the draft. Um, there were always volunteers, but in in times of uh, great need for more and more labor, they would go to um, to recruit uh, through the draft. Um, and so the Vietnam War, which was an era of both volunteers and many, many draftees, uh, was <coughs> a, a cri- presented a crisis uh, for the military mm-hmm. as for American society as a whole. Um, and and it is at that point that uh, slowly things fall apart, um, massively fall apart within the military. Um, there's tremendous amount of unhappiness, dissent inside the military. And many people would argue that one of the, the primary things that ended the Vietnam War was a dissent within the military. Um, and by dissent, sometimes quite active and insubordinate and even violent. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you could just lay that, I think people forget that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. People forget that. Um, This, the military itself, uh, the Department of Defense did a survey, uh, I believe it was around 1970, um, 71, where they, uh, they themselves found almost half of all 
in lower level enlisteds had been either dissenters or uh, disobedient, right. meaning they had refused orders. Again, this is a range of, of behaviors that they were pointing to, but uh, it included uh, uh, disobeying direct orders, going AWOL, um, or dissent, uh, basically joining, uh, going to GI coffee houses, um, making uh, on post newspapers that were uh, um, named everything from FTA, uh, which, of course, fuck the army was the uh, shorthand for that, uh, to brag briefs um, on, in Fayetteville, uh, a whole series of these around the country. Um, and joined uh, civilians in protests. Um, there was a giant protest in a park in, in Fayetteville uh, that uh, was an example of this. Uh, the, the army had to keep uh, the soldiers on post. They uh, told them that no, nobody can go off post, even though it was Saturday and many people, again, were looking forward to the day off. Um, but it, that was actually uh, to, to keep the numbers down, and even wow. so... Uh, almost a thousand soldiers were were out on that particular rally, uh, but yeah, no, it, it, and it ranged uh, not again from dissent of that sort, perfectly legal dissent, yeah. uh, to sabotage, um, army, uh, na- navy uh, sailors dropping chains in, into into equipment, uh, trying to again sabotage their their ships um, as they headed to Vietnam. So I think you know that was a and even the murder of commanding officers, and in the infamous uh, fragging yeah. of, of of officers. So I think that that notion this was just a few malcontents, or that it was not that it was mainly civilians who were unhappy with the war and the soldiers plugged on. I think that's uh, that's an incorrect uh, historical account of, of yeah. what happened, but um, and but not surprising that 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 history of, of rebellion really in the military has been whitewashed. Um, so at this point, yeah, just to underline that, that this, the synonymous identification of, of the troops with the war effort that is so taken for granted in popular political culture today mm-hmm. is that is the opposite is really the case in many ways during the Vietnam era. Soldiers are in revolt. Right. Exactly. And I think one thing that people do when they hear that news uh, or read that history is to say that's because it was a drafted army. Those were the draftees. They didn't want to be in the first place. They were not good soldiers, so they re- they they acted out. Um, but in fact, some of the most uh, vigorous dissent and disobedience came from volunteers, meaning people who had joined the military um, themselves and and found that what was happening in the war or in the military itself. It wasn't just about the war. It was about undemocratic, arbitrary justice within the, um, within the military, um, that those folks were at least as angry, at least as likely to have, uh, again, at, at, at some of the lower ranks, uh, but at least as likely to have uh, st- stood up against um, some part of that whole, um, the, the war or the military uh, institution. A little more about Vietnam before we get to some of the more recent incidents that sparked my interest in doing this interview in the first place. It it seems like a lot of this this notion of of soldiers as sort of this elite warrior caste, which we're going to talk about more when we talk about Chief of Staff John Kelly's speech um, or press conference. 
is is like you're saying really rooted in in the Vietnam War and after it there's this very this period of protest that you've discussed is replaced by this dominant conservative narrative that involves first the idea of uh, POW MIA you are not forgotten which is a right-wing conspiracy theory that the US has hidden the fact that there are prisoners of war knowingly left behind mm-hmm. and we and it's a conspiracy theory the flag of which is flown from government buildings all mm-hmm. throughout this country there's that narrative and then there's also you know this notion that troops were spit upon mm-hmm. coming back um and something that seems to happen is you have the rise of the all, all volunteer army and you also as you mentioned the the army becomes a lot more technologically sophisticated so it seems interesting to me that there's as warfare is becoming more technologized as we enter the age of smart bombs and drones and more fighting is done with 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 joysticks increasingly with joysticks and less so with guns that it's at the very same moment that we have an increased valorization of of of, of kind of soldiers warrior bravery what do you think the relationship is between the two? Because they seem at odds when you really start thinking thinking about it, but they apparently are quite copacetic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's always been a tension within the military um, and particularly an inter-service rivalry where the Air Force is the technology – are the technology guys – and the uh, and women and the, the the army is the is the physical the grunts the you know the, the that's the stereotype. And in fact, for a while, I was collecting jokes. Um, I was trying to collect jokes about military and war, just to sort of get a sense of the sort of cultural information that might be in those those kinds of what you know what's considered funny. Um, and I had a lot of trouble, as you might not be surprised to hear collecting any jokes about war that had battle or anything in them. Um, although maybe some of your listeners will help me out. Chime in with some. <laughs> chime in with some. But what there were was a tremendous number of jokes about, you know, the 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 different the other services. Coast Guard right. are puddle pirates, I've heard. Right. right. Well the 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 joke apropos of technology is, you know, that the that the Air Force has the big brains and the and the the army has the big muscles, right? And that has to do with this idea of the kind of equipment that they control and the and the the technology that they that they need to. Um, and again, they can each make fun of the other for the failures of the one or the other, the brain or the brawn. Is it because of the all volunteer nature of the army that that we have this this culture of of, of troop veneration now, or is it related to the fact that war has become so much? less dangerous for, not for the people on the other end of it, but for the Americans fighting it? Well, that's a good question, but maybe I could go back to that historical narrative because I think what happens as a result of all of this dissent and rebellion within the military, you know, as as a result of all of that rebellion, the military and the administration at the time, the Nixon administration, uh, it gets, again, extremely nervous, not only about whether they can continue to prosecute the war, uh, with an unreliable labor force, but whether they can maintain a cultural reputation uh, that uh, as as uh, straightforwardly uh, sort of a national symbol, a symbol of yeah. all that's right and good about America, uh, if the soldiers themselves are protesting the war, mm-hmm. um, are are protesting things about the army and 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 society, uh, then then again the institution was under threat in in another whole way, and so. Um, 
the, the turn to the volunteer force uh, comes first comes a, a, a decision on the part of Nixon very explicitly um, to try to separate the war from the military. In other words, to uh, get the public to focus on the soldier as an individual uh, and particularly as a suffering individual, suffering for them, and to use that to draw attention uh-huh. away from the war itself. And to rescue so, like the military's reputation from the war's bad brand sort. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Wow, we we assert the idea that the brand is are these young men mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Um, and I think that's super important. It's it's very much an open discussion that Nixon has with his his staff is how you know how are we going to deal with this, and if you put the person um, in the front, you focus on this as an escape from uh, the political right from the question the political questions about the war and what was wrong with it. So I think this this idea of of hiding the purpose, celebrate the people, ignore the purpose. Huh. Um, that began very much as a political strategy, and I think it it worked um, relatively well, and has continued to be a, a kind of an assumption about how you operate in American politics. Now, we're not going to talk about why we're in, still in Afghanistan. We're going to talk about who just got hurt. We're going to talk about you know new prosthetic devices that help the those who are uh, injured in. IED attacks to, to help them have a, a productive life. I mean, it's 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 very very much a a, a way to to not think about the war, a particular war, and its purposes and its and its success or failure. When we're thinking about the history of uh, how support our troops came to mean, but don't ever ask what they're fighting for or if it's just, rational, or whatever, that whole dynamic is rooted in this decision by by Nixon. Right. Although, again, on the left and the right, there were two different strategies. The, the, the right said, you know, celebrated the purpose as well as the people. Um, the left decided to sort of bifurcate the conversation and, and say, we support the troops. But we we still want to talk about the war and its purpose. So support our troops, bring them home. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that there's a question about whether that was or is the right strategy. But it's it's definitely something that I think has has continued to shape people across the political spectrum. Um, that it makes sense. And I think the other thing about support the troops is. It tends to be also support individual soldiers, and and the United States is a highly individualist, highly um, uh, a society, a society that sees the psychological as the most important framework for understanding anything, um, more important than the sociological. So if you can pull this little individual person or big individual person out of the whole context, um, and it, that comes naturally to uh, in American culture to think about, but, but but what about him? What about her? Look at him. Look at her. Um, what she has done, what she's overcome, what she's suffered, what he's um, trying to do for us, right? Um, to see that as uh, also consistent with this support the troops, support each and every one of those individual people, right? Though as Trump's comments about uh, McCain show, there are a lot of exceptions to that. If it's if if an individual soldier's example doesn't doesn't serve some 
someone's instrumental purposes, then that soldier can be maligned, ignored, whatever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's often the troops are a troop. And, and other than injured soldiers, a lot of individual uh, soldiers don't get highly profiled or get attended to um, very explicitly in terms of tell me what you think about the war, um, how, you know, what was your experience exactly like? Uh, it, it tends to be a very silent, I mean, the, this, the soldier is required to be quite silent um, as he or she gets venerated. Thinking back through this history we've been discussing, how is it, looking back through this history, that supporting the troops is something that conservatives do? It's like a part, it's a key facet of conservative political culture. Let me just start with the story of one man that I met in, uh, in Fayetteville who told me that we were talking about the military and he was not happy with uh, the size of government. Um, in general, he was a, kind of a libertarian. Um, but he said, you know, still, defense is the first need of every organism. Right? And what he meant was, we have to have a military, we have to have a large military. That is the only proper role of government. Um, is and this is more the libertarian perspective, but I think conservatives um, of other sorts uh, or conservatives more generally uh, would also agree with this that that's that that is supposed to be what government does first and foremost, which is to act as a father would and to be the protector of the people, right? but not the nurturer, mother. not the nurturer, not the provider of welfare and and safety nets and all of that. Um, so it's it, it at base, I think there's a gender paradigm that uh, is of the the stern and protecting father, um, and the mother who needs protection, um, the mother who's even whose nurturing role is not particularly celebrated, maybe. But um, I think that is a key to you know the way in which they see the military, right? Is as this male institution that has a proper place at the top of the social hierarchy and at the core of, of power. And that allows big government militarism to be this exception to an otherwise austere libertarian view of the role of government. In exactly. Society. Exactly. I want to turn to Trump's recent spat over the condolence call that he made to the widow of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, who was one of four U.S. troops killed in Niger recently. A place I think it's important to point out that almost no Americans had any clue. I think most people in Congress didn't seem to have any clue that there even were U.S. troops there because we have U.S. troops in so many places forever, it seems, these days. And just to lay out for listeners the chronology before we get into it, uh, Maisha Johnson, the sergeant's widow, and uh, U.S. Representative Frederica Wilson, who was also a family friend and listened in on the call, both criticized Trump for being insensitive. He apparently even struggled to remember Sergeant Johnson's name. And this part is the least strange part of everything that happened. But uh, just to begin here, on a very basic level, it's obviously just kind of horrible for the commander-in-chief who sent someone's son to die to be so callous towards his, his widow. But I'm interested in just to before we dig into the rest of the controversy, if you can set up why Trump's disrespect to this gold star widow, and this is kind of returning to the very same kind of issue we started with, 
was perceived by by his opponents to cross such a line and why it didn't matter ultimately. Like his red, white, and blue swaddled base was fine with it. Right. Apparently. The reason why he was perceived to have there again stepped on a landmine is because he said to someone who had made the ultimate sacrifice or to the wife of someone who'd made the ultimate sacrifice, as it's called, he knew what he was getting into, right? He was, he basically suggested that he bought into a labor contract. Like any smart business person or worker, he should have been uh, sure, you know, that he was in agreement with what the terms and conditions of that contract were. And uh, if he knew that he could die, and he did, so she was probably, neither of them were were going to be taken aback uh, or surprised if this actually, in fact, happened as it did. Um, but I think the reason why he was able to not explode after stepping on that landmine are a couple things, but mainly it had to do with the fact that there were two black women at the center of that discussion with him. So it was uh, the fact that they, in a, in a political culture again with a, a tremendous racism their their credibility their their feelings um, didn't matter as much um, so he was able to uh, to survive that one as well and it also seems something you just said made me think of this for the first time um, that it was this whole he knew what he was getting into is violating the ideological norms around military service by reducing what's supposed to be this the romance of this patriotic exactly. sacrifice yeah. to crude economics a deal exactly that had gone wrong exactly yeah no it's it, it is and even in the era of the all-volunteer force which is supposed to be a kind of professionalizing you know higher wages uh, better working conditions profession um, is is now what what you sign on to? Um, it's still seen as a calling. Right? So the notion that the mil- military service is a calling um, has also to do with or helps explain why people often, when talking about veterans, talk about how they have done something for the nation for which we can never repay them. Right? It is an endlessly um, unrecompensable sacrifice that they've made. That's convenient when you look at the state of the VA. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we just can't pay for it, actually, <laughs> or we won't. <laughs> um, so I think that's what Trump did there was to say, you know, it's not a calling. It's, it's a job. Um, an aside, it, on my way here, I walked past Hope High School, and there's a massive National Guard, those those traffic update signs that, you know, see like road work ahead, those temporary mobile ones, but it belongs to the National Guard, and it says – join the National Guard, have college paid for, something like that, and then says the amount of money, I believe, that Hope High School students have gotten paid for towards college by the National Guard, mm-hmm. just in front of the high school. Well, th- that's that's the whole other issue, and I think one of the core um, explanations that we need to go to for this veneration of, of the soldier and what has and the historical trend, which is to, to ever more... Uh, fervent celebration of the troops, and that is the all volunteer forces requirement for extensive advertising, marketing of 
of service, right? If you can't just call someone up and say, you're, you're joining tomorrow, uh, if you have to convince them to do so, uh, there's a tremendous new amount of investment that has to go into doing that work. And there are tens of thousands, literally, of people who get up uh, every morning, and that's their job, is to either go to a recruiting office and, and sort of do face-to-face work with young people, to go into the J-Rotsi classroom, uh, which are hundreds of thousands, but at this point there's more than 300,000 young people in American high schools who get into a uniform at some point during the week and, and go to J-Rotsi drill and and uh, classrooms. Um, there are uh, people who do the work of creating uh, marketing, who do the marketing research to find out how uh, young people think about each service and about service in general, how um, how key, what they call key influencers, parents, teachers, and others think about joining the military as a career path. Um, and then the advertising, the, the people who do the work of uh, creating and selling those ads, uh, getting contracts, putting contracts out to to, um, to create the ads that are used to uh, attract people into the military. So that's that's a tremendous amount of what even could be considered a kind of wallpaper yeah. of of uh, a positive messaging about what it means to be a soldier, what you're going to do for your college prospects, but what you're going to do for your community, how you're going to make your parents proud. Um, how you're going to get a leg up and, and uh, all sorts of other um, knowledge and skills that you'll get in the military. So I think that's that's a super important thing. Yeah. We, we take for granted, particularly younger people take for granted that that's always been the case, right? Yeah. The military, you know, advertises. But in fact, it's, it's, um, it's post-1973, post the all-volunteer force that we see any advertising whatsoever or at all, much at all. Um, There's a real tension that, there. Because it's almost as if the cause of the permanent war on terror is not compelling enough of a sales pitch on its own, that you need all this advertising oh, to absolutely. convince people that it's going to be great for college. Right. Well, um, everything gets advertised, right? Uh, Coke and Pepsi get advertised. Uh, and it's not that people wouldn't like a nice sugary brown liquid with fizz in it. It's that they wouldn't near, buy it nearly as much. They wouldn't be aware of it. They wouldn't uh, go out and do it. Right, so I think uh, go out and buy it if they if they didn't get this advertising help. So I think the same thing with the military. It's it's not that some people wouldn't join on sure. ideological grounds, uh, on, on, on the grounds of, of a sense of, of danger that they're going to protect the nation from. But the military needs far too much labor. Um, it, it has, above all, the problem of labor when it comes to um, staffing itself, right? Um, there's a, over 100,000 new recruits uh, for the active duty military that, the, that are needed every year and 75,000 that are needed for the reserves. Wow. So that's, that, that's a lot of people, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of downsides. Um, you're going to give up. Um, some freedom, some uh, uh, you know the, the, the attractions are are what's what are sold on on the advertising though. Right? Um, people can imagine some of those downsides, yeah, including you know the danger, physical danger. I want to move on to the next stage of this controversy, which is I think the most interesting, which was uh, amidst this whole controversy over. Trump's condolence call to Sergeant Johnson's widow, 
Chief of Staff John Kelly, who prior to being Chief of Staff was DHS Secretary, and prior to that was head of the U.S. Southern Command, and who also lost a son in Afghanistan. He gave this remarkable speech defending Trump, which included this very ideologically loaded theory about the role of the military and society. They are the best 1% this country produces. Most of you, as Americans, uh, don't know them. Many of you don't know anyone who knows any one of them. But they are the very best this country produces. As Masha Gessen pointed out that the 1% number is not even, doesn't, it's not clear what he's referring to. It doesn't align to any statistic. Well, and actually, 2.1 million soldiers in a 300 million person nation. Uh, what is that? Nope, not 1%. <laughs> okay. It's some small percent, but not one. He's, I think he's weirdly taking the Occupy Wall Street thing and using it for, but, um, and then he goes on and says, we don't look down upon those of you that haven't served. In fact, in a way, we're a little bit sorry, because you'll never have experienced the wonderful joy you get in your heart when you do the kind of things our servicemen and women do, uh, not for any other reason than they love this country. So just think of that, and I do... Kelly then refused to take questions from any reporter who did not personally know a Gold Star family, which, by extension to me, seemed to be telling the majority of Americans who are not military families or close to military families, that they had no right to engage in this discussion at all, drawing this bright line around Mm -hmm. discussions around the military. There's a lot going on here, and there's more of the speech. There's another segment of the speech I want to talk about. But tell me a little bit about what you see Kelly as articulating here. I think the the historical outcome of these long decades of of soldier veneration uh, has been to not just sort of say these are good guys and good women who who've done this work or who do this work, uh, but to say that this is uh, these are these are people who are super citizens, right? They're not just citizens like you and I. They do more to make the nation and therefore deserve more from the nation in the way, not just, again, of like veterans' benefits and everything else, but in terms of that, the right to, to be an American, the right to, to get the, the, the benefits of citizenship, which are basically ideological, their respect, their, it's the notion, yeah, that you, that you are worthy um, in a way that other people are not, right? So I think when, when civilians, uh, salute the soldier, um, they reinscribe or reinforce this distinction between the soldier and the civilian that you say, well, there is such a distinction. Um, there's, there's these people in uniform, these people not in uniform. These people do carry a gun and do certain work. People who don't carry guns and do other kinds of work. You know, so there's, there is a difference, but ideologically, that's a cultural distinction that can be more or less sharp more or less rigid, more or less absolute, more or less associated with other things, right? So what has happened over the decades has been this increasing notion. It's it's not that it didn't used to exist, but that the soldier is strong, the civilian is weak. The soldier's a man, no matter how many women, and 15% of the military is female, but it's still a masculine institution Unless above you're all. Jessica Lynch getting fake saved in Iraq. 
Well, getting saved exactly for that reason, to, yeah. to reassert there the masculinity. There was no one even resisting. They yeah. just rushed yeah. into the hospital and she's like, I'm fine. I'm just <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, that the notion that the Kellys really, again, pushing out even further than it is in the culture at large is, you know, civilians are just not as good people. They're not as good as, as soldiers because they're more cowardly, uh, less self-sacrificing, more consumerist, less mm-hmm. less interested in higher purposes, um, uh, less willing to take risks. Um, all of the things that make often make a, a good man versus a an inadequate man. So I think uh, that, and and certainly the the women in the in the civilian quadrant there um, are are even further marginalized. So I think that the the gender consequences of this are 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 really really strong, and that the notion that a lot of the pushback of the, the women's movement right now and of Black Lives Matter has been it has to be seen in context of this militarization, which says the 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 paragon of of citizenship uh, doesn't include um, doesn't include women, even though there are many African Americans in the in the U.S. military. Um, and that's a whole other issue, the, the, the idea of the military as a colorblind institution uh, or an institution that, that treats uh, all minorities uh, well. Um, is, uh, I mean, that's something that we, we could also talk about. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you just brought up, that, that this is something that a group like Black Lives Matter is fighting against because veneration of the military as an elite caste of of super citizens is, I think, related to the the veneration of police officers as well. And obviously, many police officers are veterans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that the paragon of citizenship is not just a soldier; it's a white man with a gun mm-hmm. in a uniform. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and yeah, some of the same thing has been happening with the, the, the people rushing to the defense of the soul, of the police police person policeman as he gets uh, critiqued right for killing people on the street right um, and uh, so the blue lives matter retort is 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 basically I think um, you know they're they're on the defensive in a way that the military is not. Um, which again has, I think, in part to do with people seeing the work of the police. They don't see the work of the military in nearly the same way. Yeah, the military is patrolling the streets of the Middle East, not exactly, n- not yet of um, mm-hmm. Chicago or or Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Another, their thing, equipment is, but they yeah, aren't. literally their equipment, mm-hmm. yeah. their surplus. Another thing that 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 stuck out to me about Kelly's comments was. As you mentioned earlier, Trump has surrounded himself with generals. He really likes people who look the part and nothing looks the part of someone in charge like a white guy with a bunch of medals on his jacket. Um, well, I guess they don't have medals on their jacket once they're in the White House, but but who did have a lot of medals on their jacket. To have a an administration so to such great an extent be run by generals make this argument – that basically civilians, implicitly at least, challenging civilian control over politics in general and particularly when it comes to military matters, not to be hyperbolic and 
alarmist, but that's a lot. That's alarming. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that there's a, there's going to be, there are going to be consequences, um, in terms of, you know, acceptance of certain kinds of people wielding power in, in certain kinds of ways. But I just put a little maybe footnote, and I mean, it's not a footnote, but a, a proviso on this, which is that these are not just any generals. Um, and uh, who knows what will happen, but they could end up giving uh, generals a bad name um, in the sense that uh, they pass through a ideological filter that, that Trump and his um, his billionaire backers have for the lists that, that were in, at work in the list that they put together of people to put forward. A filter that's weird enough for Flynn to get through. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> who was, yeah. I mean, but it does say something about you know, the, the, the military, I think in like, kind of like mainstream liberal anti-Trump universe, the, there's kind of a disturbing conversation of the deep state being the defender of democracy against Trump of like the CIA and the military being the, the adults Mm -hmm. in the room. And while it's true that Flynn was pushed out of DIA for being a weirdo conspiracy theorist, it was still an institution that he was promoted to the top of DIA through. Right, right. Two-star general. Yeah. No, absolutely. And the, I mean, just that notion of the them being the adults in the room um, has partly to do with the fact that there's a child at the helm, but that the yeah, contrast he is a set <laughs> is the, the other <laughs> the other cabinet members are not called the adults in the room, right? Even though they themselves have run organizations, big organizations, and so on. Often, um, but I think that so that's part of that paradigm. Back to what you said the daddy in the room. Exactly, the yeah. daddy in the room is the general. So I, I do think that's that's a real problem, you know, well, long term. There was an article in the Washington Post after Kelly's speech um, that was sort of like, oh, everyone has been calling him the adult in the room, and it turns out that he's been this kind of Trumpist ideologue the whole time. They didn't really call themselves out, but they were amongst the people who were just sort of looking to people like Kelly right. to moderate Trump. And then he yeah. gives the speech and it's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I think this this whole militarist paradigm makes us stupid. It makes us not ask the obvious questions, not, you know, lose our critical faculties, I think, on right and left. To what degree do you think the militarist paradigm is a driving force in and the troop veneration paradigm in the permanence of the global war on terror to the point where now it's not even a subject of debate where we had a historic left-wing challenge in the Democratic primary and except for one notable debate where Bernie brought up Henry Kissinger and other things, critiquing Clinton for for her hawkishness was was not even in play because it's not something people are talking about. The war on terror just is. Exactly. No, I, I think you know all of these recent examples of various uh, militarized responses in in the Trump administration and Trump himself or his his cabinet it, it, that, that that those are the kind of the sideshow as they are to all of the other massive changes that are going on in, in the regulatory um, regimes and in, in in government and and all sorts of other uh, sort of funding changes and and uh, enforcement priorities. Meanwhile, the war grinds on, you know, and that is uh, that is the the purpose of this military that again cannot 
cannot be spoken of. It's it's a it's a of this militarism of the military uh, itself. Yeah, the yeah, military yeah. as an institution, yeah. whose members are are let off the plane first, and and um, at whom um, you know again so much attention is paid at budget time. Um, uh, I think those those are really important um, distractions, you know, from from the you know key distractions from this this larger question of how does the military sustain its reputation as such a competent institution, as the most respected institution in American society, and 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 Pew wow. Pew um, surveys of of the American public year after year show the military is the most respected institution above the church above uh, certainly above uh congress above the presidency um uh, above edu- you know me- medical institutions um all they did was create isis by invading iraq i mean we can't be too hard on them <laughs> <laughs> well what 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 they did was spend you know over 5 trillion dollars uh, or commit 5 trillion dollars uh of federal dollars uh, uh Start two wars in which hundreds of thousands of people have died, um, several hundred thousand do- uh, people directly, uh, another you know over a million people directly and indirectly. Well, you've been involved in in the cost of war. Yes, that's, we've that's been trying to been to draw attention to what actually happens when you use this institution, um, and uh, when you use it in ways that are, again. Um, not central to the defense of the country, but are central to the defense of of uh, imperial overreach and and uh, the right to control to try and control events everywhere around the world twenty four seven. We have a global war on terror because of that very mistaken notion about what the military is for. And I say mistaken, but obviously, for many people, this is exactly the purpose: is to ensure American dominance around the world um, in every corner. And I think that's. The fact that we haven't linked the soldier and the institution, haven't asked those questions about the, the what the purposes to which the institution is being put and what the actual cost and consequences of that use of the, the military is, I think we have to ask those questions. And before I get on to the rest of Kelly's speech, if you could just highlight some of the the key findings of the cost of war and briefly explain what, what the project is. Okay. Uh, Costs of War is a collaboration between dozens at this point of uh, over 45 uh, different scholars and experts from a range of disciplines who have some expertise in these, this question of what, what happens when you go to war. Uh, what are the costs financially? What are the costs in um, uh, human life, um, in human dislocation? Um, and and tried to sort of put that all together in one place at our website costsofwar.org, um, and so those papers and and synopses of those papers are are available, and we try to get those out to journalists and to policymakers uh, to draw attention back from um, thanking people for their service to saying, you know, let's let's reconsider that that the this question of of what in fact you're being asked to do. And some of just the key, the, the the key points in terms of cost of lives and dollars. So our our findings, the key findings are about the human cost, and there um, again, which is a very conservative estimate because it's so hard to get these numbers. Um, but uh, f- about four hundred thousand people have died in these wars. 
Um, half of those, over half of those are civilians. And these are people who've died directly from bombs and bullets. Uh, and a much larger number of people in addition to that, uh, which is to say something that would raise the numbers above a million deaths, uh, died indirectly as a result of the war. Like things like destroyed infrastructure and getting cholera as a result, something like that. Exactly. Uh, illnesses, uh, loss of food supply, loss of access to medical care that one would have had otherwise. Um, those sorts of things are, are significant um, causes of, the, of loss of life uh, in the wake of, of any war. But these wars, um, again, have had a, a tremendous loss of life. The, the cost for the U.S. military has been significant, but there we have still somewhat uh, around 7,000 U.S. soldiers who've died as a result of the war. Uh, this is directly and, and in the war zone. Obviously, we know some more than that have died after the war as a result of uh, uh, their psychological or physical injuries uh, in, in ways that maybe didn't get always get counted. Um, also, U.S. contractors uh, who are now soldiers in not in uniform in a way, doing very much the kinds of jobs that soldiers did even just a few years ago. Um, they have lost their lives in in larger number even now than or close to the same number as as soldiers. Wow! So they, my, our estimate is that close to seven thousand contractors have also died. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to the Dig as well. You should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener support. So thank you. And now back to the show. So returning to Kelly's speech, which was defending Trump after Trump made this callous call to the widow of Sergeant Johnson. It stuns me that a member of Congress would have listened in on that conversation. Absolutely stuns me. And I thought at least that was sacred. You know, when I was a kid growing up, a lot of things were sacred in our country. Women were sacred and looked upon with great honor. That's obviously not the case anymore, as we see from recent cases. Life, the dignity of life, was sacred. That's gone. Religion, that seems to be gone as well. Gold Star families, I think that left in the convention over the summer. But I just thought the selfless devotion that brings a man or a woman to die on the battlefield, I just thought that that might be sacred. Obviously, Kelly is packing a lot into those few sentences. One key thing going on seems to be that there's this loss of respect for the military, which as we've discussed extensively is not the case. The opposite is very much the case. And that that loss of respect for the military some way connected to the loss of a broader traditional Christian patriarchal culture. What what do you see as as Kelly attempting to convey here? Well, it's a very defensive statement about a, a, this imagined lost world, um, 
in which men are not dominant and um, religion is is not practiced. And you know, again, it's a it's an imaginary world of of um, of the, of in which it needs to be defended. And and uh, this this person is is basically arguing that he. He is the victim of of cultural changes, of historical changes, of of political uh, choices that others have made, right? Um, as opposed to, in fact, speaking from the dais as the chief of staff of the of a all white, all male uh, administration. So it's it's an identity, uh, a defensive identity, right? Um, it's 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 based on the idea that again, then that he's the victim of of these changes. Uh, I'm not sure how I'm not really sure how to answer that. I mean, I think he's the idea of the brittleness and the defensiveness of of some on the far right, right? This idea that um they're on the attack, they're uh, uh, feeling quite belligerent towards their neighbors in uh in America in a way that um you know that are othering the, of them um I think that's that's key here. That you know he's he's positioning himself as an embattled minority uh, facing hordes of women and blacks and atheists who are, you know, about to destroy his world. Um, and somehow all of this is what's top of mind in this debate over Trump disrespecting the Gold Star Widow that turns into this congresswoman disrespecting the. The gold star conversation with the president. Right. Somehow, it's it's the it's the atheists, the women, the the black people. Right. And again, two black women. Um, they, these were not random targets. And the and the other two gold star families that he mentioned, or, uh, family members he mentioned, were Muslim Americans. Right. Yeah. More brown people um, who, again, don't belong in his world. Well, I want to ask you more about that and just to set that up for listeners. When when Kelly says uh, gold star families, I think that left in the convention over the summer, he's referring to Kazir Khan, an immigrant from Pakistan whose son was killed in Iraq, who at last year's DNC brandished a copy of the Constitution and basically attacked Trump for being anti-American. Donald Trump. You're asking Americans to trust you with their future. Let me ask you, have you even read the United States Constitution? I will gladly lend you my copy. In this document, Look for the words, look for the words liberty and equal protection of law. Have you ever been to Arlington Cemetery? Go look at the graves of brave patriots who died defending United States of America. You will see all faiths, genders, and ethnicities. You have sacrificed nothing. This was, I think, for 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 liberals, this very powerful moment. But but Trump 
emerged entirely unscathed, at least as far as his base was concerned. He attacked Khan because Khan's wife, Khan's wife had been standing next to him during the speech and uh, didn't speak. And he said, if you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. Maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me. It turned out, of course, that that she didn't hadn't wanted wanted to speak. But Trump was obviously suggesting that because she was a Muslim woman, that she might have been barred from from speaking. How do you see all of that playing out? It seems like that liberals and Democrats thought they had this sort of gotcha moment with Kazir Khan, like oh. Conservatives say that troops are the most sacred thing. So by their logic, if we have a gold star father criticized We have an Trump, unassailable speaker, political speaker. And yeah. liberals think that way all the time, but it doesn't play out like that. Well, because it's within the paradigm that that uh, that we've been talking about, right? So, so Trump looks like he stepped on the landmine again. Right? He's criticized a gold star family. But – it turns out they're brown Muslims who don't belong in his world anyway and who one can say the Democrats politicized and, uh, and then write off, right? They're simply Democrats. They're not, um, they're not gold star families. They yeah. lose the halo. Exactly. Well, if Kelly was pressed on it, I think he would say they lose the halo when they allow themselves to politicize their son's death, like exactly. Cindy Sheehan or whatever. Exactly. But but as you're saying, it's also their halo is extraordinarily tenuous and contingent because they're Muslim immigrants. Right. And the Democrats, I think, you know, because they have failed to question the national security regime that we have um, and have been as willing almost as, as the Republicans in every case to throw money at the Pentagon and to not stop the wars, um, you know, 16 years later. Um, I think that's – they tried to take the politics uh, out of this by just sort of, again, presenting them as, as, as the parents who lost a child. But again, it's the, 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 they're not willing to talk about the war, the war itself and whether he should have died. Yeah, I mean, at the service of whether well, you should have killed at the service of kind of anti-Islamophobia and multiculturalism, Kazir Khan being put up there was also still legitimating this broader culture of militarist troop veneration. I think. Right. And, and another thing that was going on there, I think, is when he says we're honored to stand here as parents of uh, of Captain Humayun Khan and as patriotic American Muslims. There's this broader notion that Muslim patriotism and Americanness, the way we know we can trust Muslims, is best exemplified by fighting and dying in wars against majority Muslim countries. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the cons, this is their intention going into that, but I think in terms of the cultural yeah. symbolism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was not a good moment. Yeah. It was not a good moment, but it was not, it's not a good a political world that the Democrats continue to, to recreate, right? Yeah. They, they will not move progressively on the question of war and peace. Um, you know, they, and, but just to also correct the, the, the notion that this, that this paradigm of veneration of veterans actually has the kinds of consequences that one would think it has. 
uh, for the long term for the people who actually are in that labor force, right? Yeah. So it is. Uh, it can be extremely dangerous work, right? Whether you're you're shot and killed, whether you're in in a war zone, um, you are often. Again, doing heavy, doing labor, doing carrying heavy packs. There's a lot of uh, lot of injuries that come outside of the war context, uh, just muscular skeletal uh, problems and so on. So, I, you know, I think when you look at where the money for war goes, um, it doesn't. You know, large numbers of dollars go to to veterans, to the Veterans Affairs, uh, but we have. Uh, a tremendous amount of obligated money. Um, the latest estimate from the Cost of War Project is uh, that uh, Nita Crawford at, at, at BU has uh, calculated is $5.6 trillion of dollars spent and obligated, meaning dollars that are going to come due as well as dollars that have already been spent. And a lot of those dollars coming due are for veterans care. But the co- Congress hasn't... Uh, projected that forward, hasn't planned for that going forward. And I think a lot of uh, the the kind of pain and suffering that we're going to see in the future for veterans is going to be disappeared, right? Um, when these the veterans of these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are in their 60s and 70s, and there's no money for their medical care, their hearing aids, their, um, you know, surgeries to deal with uh, problems from the war that are intersecting with the problems of aging and and creating a, a real problems. Those those are going to be people who are um, uh, not going to find the kind of um, financial backing that one would think this paradigm would would have promised them. Yeah, I think that's really something critical we need to to, to highlight is that support the troops does not actually necessarily mean doing much to support actual troops or veterans. It means instrumentally using troops both individually and collectively as icons to support militaristic political ends. Right. And and veterans are organized. There are uh, organizations that campaign heavily to make sure this doesn't happen, but um, they they still are not uh, celebrated the way the, the individual veteran is. What Democrats thought they were doing with Khan that didn't work for reasons that they don't seem to grasp reminded me a lot of the 2004 campaign when John Kerry was the Democrats' candidate for president. He had fought in Vietnam and then returned as a leading anti-war vet. But all that history was very much obscured during the campaign, which took place at the height the early years of the Afghan- Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And there was so much pomp and circumstance around Kerry being a war hero. At the DNC that year, accepting the nomination, he walked up to the podium and the way he introduced himself was, I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. And the Democrats thought, this is how we take on Bush, a wartime president is by making John Kerry not the courageous anti-war vet John Kerry, but the courageous war fighter John Kerry, our candidate. But just like it didn't work with Khan, it totally didn't work in 2004. The conservative group Swift Boat Veterans for Truth infamously attacked him as a fraud lying about his military record, accusing him of being a, a fake war hero. 
do you think that basically the same thing was was happening then as happened last summer? The same sort of logics were were at play. What do you think was going on? Um, yeah, no, I think this is a longstanding paradigm, and it's 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 counterproductive. It's it it constantly obscures the fact that the problem here is that, as, as Schumpeter once said, uh, an economist uh, once said, the budget is the skeleton of the state. And our U.S. federal budget is dominated by war spending. All of this cultural work is happening in service to a military budget that where massive amounts of money flows every day and redistributes American tax dollars, uh, American wealth through our social system in, in particular ways, right? to military industrial contractors, to soldiers, although personnel is just a, a, a minority fraction of the total cost of the military's uh, budget. Um, and I think we have to see this cultural work as in service to that, uh, to that skeleton, right? It's the flesh on the skeleton. Yeah. Um, it, like keeping the debate so narrow that Democrats' idea in 2004 of criticizing Bush's war on terror was to have somebody come up and salute. And we're going to fight it better. The problem right. with Bush is he's fighting it dumb. Yes, exactly. So I think that's, and I say it's not just like the, the culture is the, the icing on a cake or the the rotten icing on a cake, but it's the, uh, it, it's not that uh, the, the culture is the muscle that helps keep the skeleton moving, right? And But the skeleton we have to keep drawing attention to. And, and it's a massive redistributional device. I mean, this, these trillions of dollars every year, trillions over the years, uh, it's not random where it goes, right? It, it redistributes to certain states in what uh, one geographer calls the gun belt. Um, states like Texas and North Carolina and, uh, and Rhode Island gets its uh, good share um, where we're talking. Um, uh, it redistributes it uh, more towards men from women to men uh, because most of the employees in this system, uh, both in uniform and in contracting, are male, um, particularly in the, the sort of higher paid jobs in the engineering and technical labor that gets that gets uh, deployed for the, the military contractors making the jets and the rifles and so on. Um, and it gets redistributed uh, to wider parts of our social fabric um, because those again are even though we have many African Americans and Latinos in the in the military, um, we the the larger labor force that is the and the larger set of of hands that come out when the military budget is 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 in play are in corporations where again white males tend to be the the main profit profit uh, uh, main source places where the profits uh, go to in terms of both um, wages and, uh, you know, the, the sort of corporate profits and stocks and so on. Before I turn, before we turn to the NFL, which is the last thing I want to talk about, I wanted to ask you about the recent case of Bo Bergdahl, who walked off his army base in Afghanistan, was then held in brutal condition by, brutal conditions by the Taliban for five years. He escaped prison time recently for desertion and endangering the soldiers who look for him, in part because Trump had made calls to execute Bergdahl, a centerpiece of his campaign. We're tired of Sergeant Bergdahl, who's a traitor, 
He's a traitor, a no-good traitor, who should have been executed. We get, we get Sergeant Bergdahl, and they get five of the biggest killers that they've wanted more than any people, more than any people, for years, they've been trying to get these five killers, and they're all now back on the battlefield. And we've got Bergdahl, and yesterday I heard he probably won't even serve any time, and 30 years ago he would have been shot. And people are tired of it. To me, this issue speaks to the political power of the image of the bad soldier, the deserter, the traitor. What sort of work do you think this debate over Bergdahl which was a debate that I think most people, liberals and leftists, were less aware of, but was a fixation on the conservative right? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's a, it's a good question. What, what, what role does the bad soldier play in, in this particular political administration, but in, in uh, maybe in popular culture? Um, you know, there, there, there is the image of the soldier as damaged goods, and uh, many people are who understand that are at pains to make sure that that doesn't harm uh, people who've worked in the military, um, which is to say this sort of assumption that they're about to go ballistic or that they're, um, that, that they've, they can't manage their life and so on. Um, and, and I'm of course sympathetic with that, but yeah. I, I do think if you look at popular culture, the, the bad soldier uh, sometimes has been the bad general. If, you know, they sort of, these guys will appear occasionally in American movies, comedies often, but even in, in uh, drama where a guy with big puffed out chest and lots of medals comes and he's kind of the buffoon. He's the evil guy who's basically undermining American democracy. Um, you know, he appears fairly regularly. Um, uh, he's a he's a general though. He's not He's not a um, a grunt who shares attributes with a disliked boss generally. In some yeah, ways. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's not it's not in, irrelevant that he's in uniform. I think there is a, a, a kind of critique of elites in general, uh, in which the general is in general, but the general <laughs> is perceived as as an elite who, um, in some ways, can be questioned in a way that the that the enlisted or lower ranking officers can't be. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what's going on with, with Bergdahl and why he proved so such a fixation. I think in one part of it was that Obama secured his release and called him, um, yeah, saying I think he served honorably. That's all you have to do. Is it, is it, it's the not Obama response. But it's also this... And that's that, that identity yeah. thing, right? I mean, we are the kind of people who are religious, who respect our women, who da-da-da-da, but we're also the people who are not black. We are the people who are not... Obama voters who did, who 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 reject this non-American, uh, no birth certificate kind of guy, right? And so every uh, Trump has built his almost his entire first year of policy initiatives, such as they are, around um, it's the not Obama response. And so Bergdahl, Obama wants to forgive and forget. They will not. They will do the opposite. I think that's definitely true. I, and then I also think maybe there's something going on with a right-wing fixation on the notion of a, of a fifth column, an internal enemy that stabs the country in the back. Okay. And that has its roots in Vietnam. Um, that was the, the kind of 
um, William Gibson has a uh, an analysis of the the turn the, the paramilitary uh, the emergence of paramilitaries and paramilitarism in popular culture, um, the Rambo effect, and he basically says this this was a result of of the Vietnam War in which which delegitimized the U.S. government in general, right, on both the left and the right. The left's response was the Vietnam War was a massive violation of international law of human rights. Um, the on the right, the response was we we were betrayed by these same elites, but in another way. They tied the hands of the soldiers behind their backs. They did not support our soldiers. Um, and so we we have to make sure that we um, hold them under the under the microscope and make sure they, they don't get away with this again. So I think that, and, and the delegitimation of, of political leaders, of civilian political leaders, um, as well as the notion that some of the generals did not do what they needed to do. I think that um, that's that's not absent on the right either in that and that long tail of that um, of that uh, concern and and anxiety or anger is what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I agree. And not to put too fine a point in it, but similar notions were also um, prevalent in certain political circles in in interwar Germany to explain. Germany's defeat in World War One. Yep, there's something about the kind of stabbed in the back internal enemy idea that's very functional and right wing ideology. Right. Well, this is where I I'm going to say something pretty depressing, but I do worry that we're headed for the same kind of um, post war. If we ever get a post war um, situation, when people recognize this, these the global war on terror as a as a terrible defeat for the United States. Um, that that obviously it will will no, not look the way that Vietnam did with with the last helicopter taking off from the embassy roof um, in Saigon, but it, to the extent that you know somebody and and some people are um, Andrew Basevich and numbers of numbers of other people are trying to um, do that uh, um, do that assessment and you know. You know how terribly things went wrong, ways in which they went wrong, um, and to understand them properly, rather than to simply slide into this again same kind of uh, ignore it for a while, and but uh, at, at the under, uh, at, but an undergrowth of resentment and and fear about what it means about one's identity as an American or the American nation that we could be defeated as a nation. Yeah, there'll be there will that we could not succeed at least. There will ultimately be a political conflict over how the war is remembered, and that's high stakes. Well, one actually, on the other hand, I said that was depressing, but on the other hand, that would be great if we at least got that far. <laughs> to have a post, uh, to have a post, and to have the discussion, mm -hmm. as opposed to because the lack of discussion has become one of the most surreal parts of this war. Yes, absolutely. And a note to listeners, if you didn't catch it, uh, there's an interview with Andrew Basevich a few months back in the archives. That's illuminating. Finally, turning to the NFL. The NFL players' protest movement against police brutality, launched by Colin Kaepernick, of course, took on this whole new meaning when Trump condemned players for kneeling. He was in Huntsville, Alabama, stumping for Senator Luther Strange, who would go on to lose the Republican primary to none other than Roy Moore. And he brought the subject up in 
the midst of somewhat awkwardly explaining that he wasn't actually going to build an entire wall as he had promised across the border. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Trump's comments, of course, prompted this huge number of players to kneel in protest. But it was only after Trump's first attack on the players, as far as I can tell, that others started to tie it to fallen soldiers. Trump didn't actually say anything about fallen soldiers um, until he tweeted, courageous patriots have fought and died for our great American flag. We must honor and respect it. Make America great again. How did an NFL player protest against police brutality get turned into something about respect for troops, this huge, all-consuming debate? Well, it it's sort of obvious that it would become uh, become a debate about the flag because that's that was the object of the of that was used to symbolize American identity. But what's less obvious is that the flag is the soldier's body, right? In symbolically speaking, so the, the conflation of the flag and the soldier, um, which is the same as the conflation of the flag and and this or the the soldier and the the super citizen. Well, let me start that over. Um, I think it's obvious that the flag will be considered a symbol of the nation and that that this protest was directed at the flag, which is to say using the flag as uh, a symbol of everyone's inclusion in the nation, the the, the black and the white and the, the the everyone. So the fact that he's protesting this, um, it gets turned into a, a, a debate about soldiers because the flag is seen as, first of all, the property of the soldier. It symbolizes the soldier. The soldier defends the nation and thereby creates the nation, right? And his or her super citizenship comes from that, right? So they were able to deflect attention from, again, the purpose of the protest. As one can say, they've always tried to deflect attention from the purpose and nature of war in order to draw attention to the soldier. Um, Trump did the same thing now that Nixon did back in during Vietnam, which is to deflect. It's really interesting the way you phrase that because that, Trump's attack on the players and the whole attack on the NFL player protesters as disrespecting soldiers only makes sense if John Kelly's comments about soldiers being super citizens is a it, it's premised on people agreeing with that basically. Mm-hmm. Right. The NRA seized on this as well with a commercial of a Navy SEAL veteran. I stand for my brothers who can't stand anymore. Men who hunted terrorists to the ends of the earth, who sacrificed their bodies and their lives so that we could peacefully live ours. It's interesting that the NRA jumped into this. On on some level, it seems like there's an obvious connection being made between American domestic gun culture and overseas American gun culture, i.e. militarism. And then it also seems more broadly like the NRA is just better than any other group at cohering all these disparate things into a broader conservative culture. It's all about masculinity too, right? And um and the black men who are claiming I am I am a man um in a new way are are being 
basically dissed. They're being said, no, you're, you're not a man. You're not, you're not exercising your citizenship rights. You don't have them fully, and we won't allow that to happen. We're going to focus instead on the figure of the soldier, right, who is the real man. Um, even if, again, a lot of uh, U.S. soldiers are African-American, right? We haven't heard from them. My last question is just why why the NFL? And it seems like the question is going to – your answer might be similar to your answer to why the NRA because it turns out that the NFL NFL teams were paid millions of dollars by the Department of Defense to um, do things like military flyovers, flag unfurlings, color guard ceremonies, enlistment campaigns. The, the, the DOD – many years ago de- decided that the NFL was an ideal vehicle for pro-military publicity. Well, and, and recruitment, right? This is the, There's young boys and some young girls in the audience who they're, they're targeting. There's um, Many of them are, again, go, going to be recruited directly into the military uh, or are, you know, old enough to, to walk in the recruiter's office the next day. These are, um, you know, highly... Uh, thought through, carefully thought through recruiting plans. And in, that investment of dollars is supposed to bring in a very efficiently, more efficiently than other methods uh, that they could have chosen, the, the recruits that they need to, to staff this, again, very large military, over 2 million people. Um, and the DOD saw football players as ideal surrogates for this message. So there's something by that token, by the same token, very threatening about those same players protesting. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Catherine Lutz, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Really appreciate your questions. Catherine Lutz is an anthropologist at Brown University's Watson Institute and the author of, amongst many other things, Homefront, A Military City in the American 20th Century. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps introduce us to new listeners is you telling your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution. One bucks, two bucks, five bucks, whatever. Your support makes this show possible.